Punch and Go by John Galsworthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Cast Narrator Read by Michelle Eaton James G. Frust, The Boss Read by Todd E. Blewett Vane Read by Larry Wilson Mr. Forson, The Stage Manager Read by Algie Pug Electrics Read by Libby Gone Props Read by Bill Yallily Guy Toon Read by Tavarish Vanessa Halgrove Read by Amanda Friday George Fleetway Read by Lambda Maud Hopkins Read by Elizabeth Clatt A Voice Read by Christine G Punch and Go A Little Comedy Scene The Stage of a Theatre Action Continuous Though the Curtain is Momentarily Lowered According to That Action Punch and Go The Scene is the Stage of the Theatre Set for the dress rehearsal of the little play, Orpheus with his lute. The curtain is up, and the audience, though present, is not supposed to be. The set scene represents the end section of a room, with wide French windows, back centre, fully opened onto an apple orchard in bloom. The back wall with these French windows is set only about ten feet from the footlights, and the rest of the stage is orchard. What is visible of the room would indicate the study of a writing man of culture. Note, if found advantageous for scenic purposes, this section of room can be changed to a broad veranda or porch with pillars supporting its roof. In the wall, stage left, is a curtained opening, across which the curtain is half drawn. Stage right of the French windows is a large armchair, turned rather towards the window, with a book rest attached on which is a volume of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, while on a stool alongside are writing materials such as a man requires when he writes with a pad on his knees. On a little table close by is a reading lamp with a dark green shade. A crude light from the floats makes the stage stare. The only person on it is Mr. Forson, the stage manager, who is standing in the centre looking upwards as if waiting for someone to speak. He is a short, broad man, rather blank and fatal. From the back of the auditorium, or from an empty box, whichever is most convenient, the producer, Mr. Blewett Vane, a man of about thirty-four, with his hair brushed back, speaks. Mr. Forson? Sir? We'll do that lighting again. Forson walks straight off the stage, into the wing's right. A pause. Mr. Forson! Crescendo. Mr. Forson. Forson walks on again from right and shades his eyes. For goodness sake, stand by. We'll do that lighting again. Check your floats. Speaking up into the prompt wings. Electrics. Hello. Give it us again. Check your floats. The floats go down, and there is a sudden blinding glare of blue lights in which Forson looks particularly ghastly. Great Scott! What the blazes? Mr. Forson? Forson walks straight out into the wings left. Crescendo. Mr. Forson. Reappearing. Sir? Tell Miller to come down. Electrics. Mr. Blue Vane wants to speak to you. Come down. 
tell herbert to sit in that chair forson walks straight out into the right wings mr forson reappearing sir don't go off the stage forson mutters electrix appears from the wings stage left he is a dark thin-faced man with rather spiky hair yes mr vane look that's what i got marked mr vane once for all what i want is the orchard in full moonlight and the room dark except for the reading lamp cut off your front battens electrix withdraws left forson walks off the stage into the right wings mr forson reappearing sir see this marked right now come on with it i want to get some beauty into this while he is speaking herbert the call-boy appears from the wings right a mercurial youth of about sixteen with a wide mouth maliciously here you are then mr vane herbert sit in that chair herbert sits on the armchair with an air of perfect peace now all the lights go out in a wail great scott a throaty chuckle from forson in the darkness the light dances up flickers shifts grows steady falling on the orchard outside the reading lamp darts a light and a piercing little glare from it strikes into the auditorium away from herbert in a terrible voice mr forson sir look at that shade forson mutters walks up to it and turns it round so that the light shines on herbert's legs on his face on his face forson turns the light accordingly is it what you want mr vane yes now mark that up into wings right electrics hello mark that the blue suddenly becomes amber my god the blue returns all is steady herbert is seen diverting himself with an imaginary cigar mr forson sir ask him if he's got that have you got that yes now pass to the change take your floats off altogether calling up floats out they go out cut off the lamp the lamp goes out put a little amber in your back batten mark that now pass to the end mr forson sir blackout calling up blackout the lights go out give us your first lighting lamp on and then the two changes quick as you can put some pep into it mr forson sir stand for me where miss helgrove comes in forson crosses to the window no no by the curtain forson takes his stand by the curtain and suddenly the three lighting effects are rendered quickly and with miraculous exactness good leave it at that we'll begin mr forson send up to mr frost he moves from the auditorium and ascends on to the stage by some steps stage right Herb, call the bus until beginners to stand by sharp now 
herbert gets out of the chair and goes off right forson is going off left as vane mounts the stage mr forson reappearing sir i want props in a stentorian voice props another moth-eaten man appears through the french windows is that boulder firm going to where in front of the back cloth and apparently among its apple trees lies the counterfeitment of a mossy boulder he puts his foot on it well, if you don't put too much weight on it sir it won't creak no he mounts on it and a dolorous creaking arises make that right let me see the loot props produces a property loot while they scrutinize it a broad man with broad leathery clean-shaven face and small mouth occupied by the butt-end of a cigar has come on to the stage from stage left and stands waiting to be noticed attracted by the scent of the cigar the boss sir turning to props that'll do then props goes out through the french windows to frost now sir we're all ready for rehearsal of orpheus with his lute in a cosmopolitan voice orpheus with his lute that his lute mr vane why doesn't he pinch something more precious has this highbrow curtain razor of yours got any pep in it it has charm i'd thought of pop goes the weasel with little migs we kind of want a cocktail before louisa loses mr vane well sir you'll see this is your lighting it's a bit on the spiritual side i've left my glass guess i'll sit in the front row half a minute who plays this orpheus george fleetway has he got punch it is a very small part who are the others guy toon plays the professor vanessa helgrove his wife maud hopkins the fawn hmm names don't draw they're not expensive any of them miss helgrove's a find i think pretty quite arty doubtfully no with resolution look here mr frust it's no use your expecting another pop goes the weasel well if it's got punch and go that'll be enough for me let's get to it he extinguishes his cigar and descends the steps and sits in the centre of the front row of the stalls mr forson appearing through curtain right sir beginners take your curtain down he descends the steps and seats himself next to frost the curtain goes down a woman's voice is heard singing very beautifully sullivan's song orpheus with his lute and his lute made trees and the mountain tops that freeze etc some voice the curtain rises in the armchair the professor is yawning tall thin abstracted and slightly grizzled in the hair he has a pad of paper over his knee ink on the stool to his right and the encyclopedia volume on the stand to his left barricaded in fact by the article he is writing he is reading a page over to himself but the words are drowned in the sound of the song his wife is singing in the next room partly screened off by the curtain she finishes and stops his voice can then be heard conning the words of his article 
Orpheus symbolized the voice of beauty, the call of life, luring us mortals. With his song, back from the graves we dig for ourselves. Probably the ancients realized this neither more nor less than we moderns. Mankind has not changed. The civilized being still hides the fawn and the dryad within its broadcloth and its silk. And yet... He stops with a dried-up air rather impatiently. Go on, my dear. It helps the atmosphere. The voice of his wife begins again, gets as far as made them sing, and stops dead, just as the professor's pen is beginning to scratch, and suddenly drawing the curtain further aside, she appears, much younger than the professor, pale, very pretty, of a Botticellian type, in face, figure, and in her clinging cream-coloured frock. She gazes at her abstracted husband, then swiftly moves to the lintel of the open window, and stands looking out. God, what beauty! looking up um i said god what beauty uh-huh looking at him do you know that i have to repeat everything to you nowadays what that i have to repeat yes i heard i'm sorry i get absorbed in all but me startled my dear your song was helping me like anything to get the mood this paper is the very deuce to balance between the historical and the natural. Who wants the natural? Grumbling. Hmm, wish I thought that. Modern taste, history may go dang. They're all for tuppence-coloured sentiment nowadays. As if to herself. Is the spring sentiment? I beg your pardon, my dear, I didn't catch. As if against her will urged by some pent-up force beauty beauty that's what i'm trying to say here the orpheus legend symbolizes to this day the call of beauty he takes up his pen while she continues to stare out at the moonlight yawning oh dash it i get so sleepy i wish you'd tell them to make the after-dinner coffee twice as strong I will. How does this strike you? Conning. Many Renaissance pictures, especially those of Botticelli, Francesca, and Piero di Cosimo, were inspired by such legends as that of Orpheus, and we owe a tiny gem like Raphael, Apollo, and Martyrs to the same pagan inspiration. We owe it more than that. Rebellion against the dry as dust quite i might develop that we owe it our revolt against the academic or our disgust at big business and all the grossness of commercial success we owe his voice peters out it love abstracted uh, i said we owe it love rather startled possibly but uh with a dry smile i mustn't say that here hardly to herself and the moonlight orpheus with his lute most people think a lute is a sort of flute yawning heavily my dear if you're not going to sing again 
Do you mind sitting down? I want to concentrate. I'm going out. Mind the dew. The Christian virtues and the dew. With a little dry laugh. <laughs> not bad, not bad. The Christian virtues and the dew. His hand takes up his pen, his face droops over his paper, while his wife looks at him with a very strange face. How far we can trace the modern resurgence against the Christian virtues to the symbolic figures of Orpheus, Pan, Apollo, and Bacchus might be difficult to estimate, but... During those words his wife has passed through the window into the moonlight, and her voice rises singing as she goes, Orpheus with his lute, with his lute made trees. Suddenly aware of something. She'll get her throat bad. He is silent as the voice swells in the distance. Sounds queer at night. Hmm. He is silent, yawning. The voice dies away. Suddenly his head nods. He fights his drowsiness, writes a word or two, nods again, and in twenty seconds is asleep. The stage is darkened by a blackout. Frost's voice is heard speaking. What's that girl's name? Vanessa Hellgrove. Aha! Uh -huh. The stage is lighted up again, moonlight bright on the orchard, the room in darkness where the professor's figure is just visible sleeping in the chair, and screwed a little more round towards the window. From behind the mossy boulder, a fawn-like figure uncurls itself and peeps over, with ears standing up and elbows leaning on the stone, playing a rustic pipe, and there are seen two rabbits and a fox sitting up and listening. A shiver of wind passes, blowing petals from the apple trees. The fawn darts his head towards where, from right, comes slowly the figure of a Greek youth, holding a lute or lyre, which his fingers strike, lifting out little wandering strains, as of wind whinnying in funnels and odd corners. The fawn darts down behind the stone, and the youth stands by the boulder playing his lute. Slowly while he plays, the whitened trunk of an apple tree is seen to dissolve into the body of a girl with bare arms and feet, her dark hair unbound, and the face of the professor's wife. Hypnotised, she slowly sways towards him, their eyes fixed on each other, till she is quite close. Her arms go out to him, cling round his neck, and their lips meet. But as they meet, there comes a gasp, and the professor with rumpled hair is seen starting from his chair, his hands thrown up, and at his horrified, oh, the stage is darkened with a blackout. The voice of Frost is heard speaking. Gee! The stage is lighted up again, as in the opening scene. The professor is seen in his chair, with spilt sheets of paper round him, waking from a dream. He shakes himself, pinches his leg, stares heavily round into the moonlight, rises. Phew! Beastly dream! Poof! Hmm. He moves to the window and calls. Blanche! Blanche! To himself. Made trees! Made trees! Calling. Blanche! Yes? Where are you? Appearing by the stone with her hair down. Here. I say, I, I've been asleep, had a dream. Come in, I'll tell you. She comes and they stand in the window. I dreamed I saw a fawn on that boulder blowing on a pipe. 
He looks nervously at the stone. With two damned little rabbits and a fox sitting up and listening. And then from out there came our friend Orpheus, playing on his confounded lute, till he actually turned that tree there into you. And gradually he, he drew you like a snake, till you, uh, put your arms around his neck and, uh, kissed him. Boof! I woke up. Most unpleasant. Why, your hair's down. Yes. Why? It was no dream. He was bringing me to life. What on earth? Do you suppose I am alive? I'm as dead as Eurydice. Good heavens, Blanche. What's the matter with you tonight? Pointing to the litter of papers. Why don't we live instead of writing of it? She points out onto the moonlight. What do we get out of life? Money, fame, fashion, talk, learning? Yes, and what good are they? I want to live. Helplessly. My dear, I really don't know what you mean. Pointing out into the moonlight. Look, Orpheus with his lute, and nobody can see him. Beauty, beauty, beauty. We let it go. With sudden passion. Beauty, love, the spring. They should be in us, and they're all outside. My dear, this is... This is awful. He tries to embrace her, avoiding him in a stilly voice. Oh, go on with your writing. I'm... I'm upset. I've never known you so... so... Hysterical? Well, it's over. I'll go and sing. Soothingly. There, there, I'm sorry, darling, I really am. You're hipped, you're hipped. He gives, and she accepts a kiss. Better. He gravitates towards his papers. All right, now. Standing still and looking at him. Quite. Well, I'll try and finish this tonight. Then tomorrow we might have a jaunt. How about a theatre? There's a thing, they say, called Chinese chops that's been running years. Softly to herself, as he settles down into his chair. Oh, God! While he takes up a sheet of paper and adjusts himself, she stands at the window, staring with all her might at the boulder, till from behind it the fawn's head and shoulders emerge once more. Very queer the power suggestion has over the mind. Very queer. There is nothing really in animism, you know, except the curious shapes, rocks, trees and things, taking certain lights, effect they have on our imagination. He looks up. What's the matter now? Startled. Nothing. Nothing. Her eyes waver to him again, and the fawn vanishes. She turns again to look at the boulder. There is nothing there. A little shiver of wind blows some petals off the trees. She catches one of them, and turning quickly, goes out through the curtain. Coming to himself and writing. The Orpheus legend is the uh, apotheosis of animism. Can we accept? His voice is lost in the sound of his wife's voice beginning again. Orpheus with his lute, with his lute made trees. It dies in a sob. The professor looks up startled as the curtain falls. Fine, fine. Take up the curtain. 
Mr. Forson? The curtain goes up. Sir? Everybody on. He and Frost leave their seats and ascend onto the stage on which are collecting the four players. Give us some light. Electrics, turn up your floats. The footlights go up and the blue goes out. The light is crude as at the beginning. I'd like to meet Miss Helgrove. She comes forward eagerly and timidly. He grasps her hand. Miss Helgrove, I want to say I thought that fine. Fine! Her evident emotion and pleasure warm him so that he increases his grasp and commendation. Fine! It quite got my soft spot. Emotional. Fine! Oh, Mr. Frost, it means so much to me. Thank you. A little bolder in the eye and losing warmth. Um, fine. His eye wanders. Where's Mr. Flatway? Fleetway. Fleetway comes up. Mr. Fleetway, I wanted to say I thought your Orpheus quite remarkable. Fine. Thank you, sir. Indeed. So glad you liked it. A little bolder in the eye. There wasn't much to it, but what there was was fine. Mr. Toon? Fleetway melts out and Toon is precipitated. Mr. Toon, I was very pleased with your professor. Quite a character study. Toon bows and murmurs. Yes, sir. I thought it fine. His eye grows bald. Who plays the goat? Appearing suddenly between the windows. I play the fawn, Mr. Frost. Introducing. Miss Maud Hopkins. Miss Hopkins, I guess your fawn was fine. Oh, thank you, Mr. Frost. How nice of you to say so. I do so enjoy playing him. His eye growing bald. Mr. Forson, I thought the way you fixed that tree was very cunning. I certainly did. Got a match? He takes a match from Forson, and lighting a very long cigar, walks upstage through the French windows, followed by Forson, and examines the apple tree. The two actors depart, but Miss Helgrove runs from where she has been lingering, by the curtain, to Vane, stage right. Oh, Mr. Vane, do you think? He seemed quite... Oh, Mr. Vane! Ecstatically. If only... Pleased and happy. Yes, yes, all right. You were splendid. He liked it. He quite... Uh... Clasping her hand. How wonderful! Oh, Mr. Vane, thank you. She clasps his hands, but suddenly seeing that Frost is coming back, fits across into the curtain and vanishes. The stage in the crude light as empty now save for Frost who in the French window centre is mumbling his cigar, and Vane stage right, who is looking up into the wings stage left, calling up. That lighting's just right now, Miller. Got it marked carefully? Yes, Mr. Vane. Good. To Frost, who is coming down. Well, sir, so glad... Mr. Vane, we got little Migs on contract? Yes. Well, I like that little pocket piece fine, but I'm blamed if I know what it's all about. A little staggered. Why, uh, of course it's a little allegory. The tragedy of civilization, all real feeling for beauty and nature kept out, or pent up even in the cultured. Yeah. 
meditatively. Little Miggs would be fine in Pop Goes the Weasel. Yes, he'd be all right, but I... Get him on the phone and put it into rehearsal right now. What? But this piece, I, I, uh... Guess we can't take liberties with our public, Mr. Vane. They want pep. Distressed. But it'll, it will break that girl's heart. I really, I, I can't, I... Give her the part of the tweenie in Pop Goes. Mr. Frost, I, I beg. I've taken a lot of trouble with this little play. It's good. It's that girl's chance, and I would... Well, I certainly thought she was fine. Now, you phone up Miggs and get right along with it. I've only one rule, sir. Give the public what it wants, and what the public wants is punch and go. They've got no use for beauty, allegory, all oh, that highbrow racket. I know, miss, I know my hand. During this speech, Miss Helgrove is seen listening by the French window, in distress, unnoticed by either of them. Mr. Frost, the public would take this, I'm sure they would. I'm convinced of it. You underrate them. Now see here, Mr. Blewett Vane. Is this my theatre? I tell you I can't afford luxuries. But it... it moved you, sir. I saw it. I was watching. With unmoved finality. Mr. Vane, I judge I'm not the average man. Before Louisa loses, the public will want a stimulant. Pop Goes the Weasel will suit us fine. So get right along with it. I'll go get some lunch. As he vanishes into the wings left, Miss Helgrove covers her face with her hands. A little sob escaping her attracts Vane's attention. He takes a step towards her, but she flies, dashing his hands through his hair till it stands up. Damnation! Forson walks on from the wings right. Sir? Punch and go. That superstition. Forson walks straight out into the wings left. Mr. Forson! Reappearing. Sir? This is scrapped. With savagery. Tell him to set the first act of Louisa Loses. And put some pep into it. He goes through the French windows with the wind still in his hair. In the centre of the stage. Electrics! Hello! Where's Charlie? Gone to his dinner. Anybody on the curtain? Yes, Mr. Forreston. Put your curtain down. He stands in the centre of the stage, with eyes uplifted as the curtain descends. The End End of Punch and Go by John Galsworthy <laughs>